Hello, 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 and welcome to the 21st episode of Mixed Media Reviews. My name is Kelsey, and today I'll be talking about a book, or rather, two books. This week's books are With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Acevedo and Aces of Spades, Aces of Spades by Farida Abike Imde, and hopefully I said it right this time. Both of these books have been very popular on Bookstagram, which is why I was pretty hesitant about reading them. I know sometimes books are popular on there because they're genuinely good. That's what I found out with uh, The Firekeeper's Daughter, which I, if you know, you know that I absolutely love that book. Um, but sometimes the books seem to be popular just because they're popular. I don't even know. There seems to be this trend kind of going around on Bookstagram and I'm sure on BookTok and BookTube as well where they're just kind of promoting the same books over and over again, and they're not even really reviewing them. Like, why Why do I follow a bookstagrammer if they're literally just posting pictures about books? I don't know. Sorry about the mini rant this so, <laughs> so early in this episode. Um, anyway, I love both of the covers of these books, which is why they tempted me into reading them. With a Fire on High has a young girl's profile against a nice orange background. Her curls are set on top of her head, falling around a pink bandana. Various fruits dot the page around her with white letters across that spell out With the Fire on High. Ace of Spades has a cover that mimics a playing card. Two young students, dressed in their school uniform, mirror each other down the center of the page, holding the place that is usually held for royalty. A red argyle background is bordered by white and blue with the saying, how do you stop an unknown enemy broken up along the sides? Ace of spades is written across the center of the image, a spade in the center of the O. Like I said, these covers are great and they both actually fit really well with their respective books. Next up, I'm going to be doing a summary of both books, but then I'll do each book with my likes and my critiques after that, splitting up the books instead of the section of what I like and my critiques. I also won't have too much of the specific kind of spoilers about With the Fire on High, but for Ace of Spades, I will have all of the spoilers, including the whodunit reveal. With the Fire on High is about a single teenage mom trying to get through high school. An amazing, improvising cook, she must learn to follow directions in her culinary class so that she can hopefully join them on a trip to Spain. Imani is trying very hard to find balance in the world with being a mother, a student, and a kid. Ace of Spades follows two different characters, Chiamaka and I believe it's Devon, or at least that's what people have been saying on the internet, uh, who become the targets of an anonymous bully. As things begin getting worse, it seems that the bully is getting closer and closer to destroying their lives. So first up, let's talk about With the Fire on High. Like I said, this one will be split up between the books instead, so I will first talk about what I liked about it and then the critiques, and then I'll jump into Aces of Spades. I really liked With the Fire on High, um, which I'm sure is surprising to everybody that I liked a book, but Elizabeth Acevedo is a phenomenal writer, which completely makes sense since she's a poet, so she obviously knows words and understands how to write well. 
Her writing was just so incredibly beautiful and captivating. She did such a great job of being descriptive without falling into that trap of being overly descriptive, descriptive, or metaphoric that I feel like a lot of people tend to fall in when they try to write with a more beautiful or more poetic way of writing. I thought also that this was just such a great story that felt super realistic. Being a single parent, being raised by her grandmother, having a job, trying to balance being a mother with a student, and still trying to feel like a kid. Imani was a great mother who really struggled to find that time for herself, which is something that I think most mothers can relate to without being a teenager in high school. Part of what made the book feel so realistic were the characters, from Imani to her abuela, to the love interest Malachi, to her child's father, um, Tyrone, and his family who, you know, didn't want anything to do with her, to her best friend Angelica. The characters all had a dimension to them. They felt established, which in turn made the relationships all feel very real and established. I think they also behave true to the characters that Acevedo sets up. I like that her best friend tries to get her to be more like a kid in high school. She pushes her to find love and tells her, you know, to kind of get back out there. I like that her abuela finds that time for herself because she's also trying to balance the role of, you know, being a grandmother while also being the guardian of her granddaughter while also, you know, being a great grandmother and helping out and, you know, still being a person. And I like that Imani was hesitant about Malachi at first, instead of, you know, just immediately diving in. That completely makes sense for the character and for, you know, I'm sure anyone who is in her situation and would be hesitant about someone else coming into their life, especially introducing her to her child. I also really love the way that she incorporated food in this story. Not only having like literal recipes in the style of how I'm sure Imani would write them down if she did even write any of them down, um, but also how it was used to recall the memories. I listened to a lot of the Off Menu podcast, which if you have not listened to it, do it now. Um, But I love how food can evoke those memories and those feelings in people. And hearing those stories are always really interesting, especially, you know, because it's such a wide variety of people and backgrounds and what those stories really are and those feelings that, you know, kind of come up from eating random things or being in a certain place. Acevedo really uses this uh, in her story to add that extra layer of depth to the story, and it helps kind of reveal bits and pieces about the past along the way. It also maybe seemed like her food was literal magic. Like it conjured memories. I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be like legit magic or if maybe it was just how we recall memories from food in real life, but it definitely seemed more like it was magic, especially because she said it didn't work on herself and how the one customer in Spain kind of acted when he ate the food and had those memories recalled. But I don't know. Either way, I did like that aspect of the story. As for critiques, I really only have, I guess you could say too, the largest and probably most critical thing that I have to say for this book is just the chapter length in general. I understand that Acevedo's background is poetry, 
and I understand that she wrote this book in prose as well, but I still just couldn't get past how short these chapters were. At most, they were like three pages long, and it just felt like it kept stopping and halting the story. Chapters are used in that way to stop the flow. They're used to finalize a scene or maybe to add drama or suspense to a situation. These chapters kept stopping the flow of the story and it almost seemed to be used as like a cheat so he could go from one place in the story to the next, whether, you know, physical or just the next moment in time, without actually having the detail of how he got from point A to point B. To me, the short chapters just did not work well. It felt more like a series of moments rather than a continuous story that I was reading. Which was a real bummer because I I really enjoyed this book so much. And it could easily have been a five-star book for me, but those short chapters just really took me out. This may be more of a personal preference and how I read stories or how I view what a chapter is and does, but to me, it was enough that I, <laughs> every single time, I just hated it. <laughs> the next item, like I said, isn't maybe a super critique, but the name of the book I also thought was maybe not the best name for the book. It doesn't flow very well with the fire on high, um, and having every, every other word be a capital letter makes it feel odd anytime I write it down or type it up, um, which is, uh, I think, a really weird critique and obviously probably even more so just a me thing than, than the actual critique that I have for this book. Um, but I just thought for someone who is so good with words, it is kind of a stumbling of a title. All right, so Ace of Spades. Let's let's talk about Ace of Spades. This book was one of those ones that I liked it when I finished it, but then the more I thought about it, the more I questioned anything and everything about myself and the book. So let's start with what I still like about this book. I really liked the premise that there was some anonymous bully that was spreading the, you know, the secrets of these two students. And I liked that they were texts being sent to the whole school, kind of, you know, making it a more modern story. Um, and I also liked that they were sent to the whole school except for the person that it was about. I liked that the secret society of, you know, aces was, you know, super intriguing and very realistic in some ways. I'll dive into that later. Um, but I liked those aspects of it, you know, the dark academia aspects and the secret society kind of a thing had a lot of potential. I also really liked Devon. He was an incredibly, incredibly sympathetic character. I felt so bad for him and not just because of the stuff about aces, but I mean, he just seemed like a good kid who was just trying to survive in a world that did not really deal him a great hand. Huh? Get it? Cause it's like aces of spades. Anyway. I, I think Devon worked really hard and tried his best, and I just wanted to give him a hug so many times in this story because, boy, was he living a rough life. 
I think the writing was fairly decent for a debut novel, especially a debut novel by an author who is still in college. <laughs> Um, the voices of each character probably could have been a bit better, a bit more distinct, but I think overall it was a fairly good job, and I did like the addition of the two perspectives switching between the two students being bullied. I think that gives us a probably a better understanding and a more well-rounded view of the situation than if it was just told by one of the characters, or even in a way that didn't really give us an insight into their minds. So what about critiques? Well, I have plenty of those bad boys. The first, and prob probably, no, not probably, they're all pretty bad. Here's one of them, I guess. Here's one critique. Chiamaka, she's a terrible character. Not only does she not have any character development throughout the whole book to make us finally start feeling, you know, sympathetic towards her, she just starts out so bad that it's hard to root for her at all. You know, besides the basic, no one should ever go through what they're going through and therefore I wish it wasn't happening to her kind of rooting. But she is not in any way a sympathetic character, nor does she ever become sympathetic. Her entire character is about how she thinks she is better than everyone, which of course we know because we're inside of her head, right? She has to get a boyfriend so she can prove that she's better than everyone and be this perfect person. And I, it's so annoying being in her thoughts. Her entire character is just that point and like nothing else. Even in the epilogue, she still just seems like that rich, spoiled kid who looks down on others. And I don't see why you'd make one of the characters that we're supposed to be rooting for so terrible to start with. In the beginning, I thought that the texts were going to be from the girl who brought her coffee because she treated her like crap. And I was like, yeah, that freaking makes sense. And it seemed that there were plenty of people at the school who would hate her for very valid reasons. And yet none of this was ever brought up or made into anything because none of that mattered. And it should have. It should have mattered that the character wasn't very likable or make your character likable so that we root for them even more. It was also super weird that pretty much every single thing that was told about Chiamaka was a lie. But with Devon, it was all just facts. Also, Devon had so much more terrible things that he had to deal with versus Chiamaka, and she acted like they were going through the same thing. I mean, he was scared of finding out anyone... Uh, he was scared of anyone finding out that he was gay. He had to share a bed with his siblings because his mother couldn't afford, you know, a larger house for them. His father was in prison. He had to sell drugs to help come up with money for the bills. Like, every single aspect of his life was terrible. He was bullied, he was beaten up because people had found out he was gay in his last school. Like, just everything was terrible. And Chiyomaka's worst thing, which I admit is pretty terrible to think that you were in the car when, you know, someone was killed with that car, but it wasn't even something that she did, and it turned out to be completely fake. Like I mentioned before, she was not a great person, so it seems like they could have shown a light on her own bullying but instead they just made a bunch of stuff up and then spread that while then comparing her to Vaughn, who was like, oh, he deals drugs and is gay. 
and those are the things that we're gonna just spread and like make him hate his life about I don't know one critique I heard that I myself couldn't put into words until I heard somebody else say it was that it seemed to highlight so many negative like black stereotypes I knew something felt off about the way that you know Devon was depicted and his life was depicted and I couldn't really figure out what until I heard someone say that and I was like oh yes that is that is what is happening because it didn't highlight any positive aspects really about black culture right I mean Chiamaka was very busy trying to pass as white while she like trying to fit in with the very white school while everything about Devon was just bad and terrible the like everything that he did and everything that he was involved in just sucked there didn't seem to be any highlights and positivity about black culture his relationship with his mother was terrible as well as with you know his community because everyone he knew was i guess homophobic the entire community the entire neighborhood he was from and on top of that there's a storyline about his father being in prison and then being executed and for what purpose it didn't advance the plot everything about Devin's life was just created to be terrible he even has a falling out with his mother over this and then in the epilogue it's just resolved and again for what everything that happened to Chiyomaka was all lies like I said she wasn't even driving when they faked killing that girl and <laughs> she was set up in both the stealing situation and when she was turned out you know to be the other girl that her best friend was cheating with her on <laughs> or whatever it was just ridiculous the contrast between the two lives every one of her problems was manufactured while devon's was a result in living in the community he was from and with the fire on a high, Imoni has a rough life. And you can say that it's maybe stereotypical of, you know, a young teenager having, you know, being a single mom, having the, the dad that doesn't want to be a part of it, or isn't a good father, or the family that doesn't want anything to do with her, and whatever. You know, her financial situation isn't great, her parents aren't around, all these things build up. But we also see a lot of great things in her life. We see the positives of her culture as well. We see her, uh, her relationship with her abuela. We see how she uses food to connect with those around her and connect with her culture as well. And we see her hanging out with friends and the connections that she has to that community. This is completely absent in Devon's story. It isn't until the very, very end that we even get a sense of the positive community that he's a part of. You know, when... He tweets it for whatever reason, and then people, like, show up to save them at the last minute. That's finally, like, their community coming together, but it's not, there's no redemption of him, you know, I guess, like, there's some redemption because his mom is okay with him being gay, but that's, like, it? I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of, a lot of negativity in Devon's life, and it just seems to paint him in a bad light and his entire neighborhood and community in a bad light. I always hate stories 
where kids don't go to their parents, you know, like in Pretty Little Liars, I just wanted them to go to their parents. They kind of made it a thing where they're like, oh, well, if you tell anybody, you know, who knows, and you're hiding secrets for your parents, and maybe those secrets will come out, and I guess they maybe tried to make it look like they didn't have a choice, and like they couldn't go to the police, and whatever. Pretty Little Liars is a plot hole filled, I don't even know, crap fest. <laughs> I mean, of course I love it, but still. Anyway, I always hate when they don't go to their parents and this story was absolutely no different. I can kind of understand not going to Devon's mom, right? Wanting to shield her from everything that's really happening at the school since she works really hard to get him to be able to go to that school. And I can even understand Chiamaka's hesitation in telling her father, who is a white man, given that, you know, he doesn't really seem to stand up for her and her mother to his family, who seems to be super racist, and he still goes and visits and, I guess, doesn't try to be like, hey, forget you guys if you're going to be jerks to my daughter and my wife. Um, and I also can get that just because you're married to a black woman, that doesn't mean you actually understand what, you know, being black means just because you, you know, are married to someone doesn't mean you understand their experience in their life. So I could see why maybe not wanting to go to her father because still thinking he's not going to get it. That could, that's probably pretty valid actually. But why wouldn't they go to her mother? She would definitely understand right? And she would have even more power or status than Devon's mother would have so that she could actually bring something to the table to maybe fight against it. But they don't even mention her. They don't say like, oh, we kind of talked to her and she just dismissed it. Like maybe she's just dismissive of all of it or something. They just, they just completely leave her out of it, but then decide to go to some random reporter who of course is also somehow involved with the secret society. So they trust a random stranger over her mother, I guess. And also, where were the parents after the school burns down? There's no parents, like, ever around. They just go to Terrell's with no mention of a parent calling, even though the school was on fire, and they just hang out? I don't know. Whatever. But yeah, I didn't understand why they didn't go to her mom about it. Or even, like, explain. Again... If you just put in a line like, oh, this is why we can't go to the mom, I'm like, okay, so they really are on their own here, and they gotta try to figure out themselves. But they didn't. And they just didn't go to her mom for some reason. And and that leads me, you know, to my next critique, or at least the random reporter part of it does. This scheme was way, way, way too overarching. I like that the bully ended up being not one person, but, you know, a bunch of people being part of a secret society, but it was way too involved. The entire school ended up being the secret society, right? At the end, they're in that gym or, you know, event ballroom space, and literally everybody pulls out a mask to be a part of it? What? We know that the more people who are part of, like, a conspiracy, the less likely it is to stay secret, right? I mean, you can't hold a bunch of people to staying secret. And also, wouldn't, wouldn't you run the risk of running into people that don't have those same values? You know, and yet this society has been doing this for decades, and apparently across the country. 
it just seemed ridiculous that no one ever made any connections that it could possibly go on for so long. They only allowed in two black students every 10 years, and they were the only black people in an entirely white school, and no red flags were ever raised. Not a single non-white person ever applied for a job at the school. There's no Asian person or, or Hispanic person who ever wanted to just get a job and then get and realize that literally everybody there is white. And there's not a single non-white person who ever applied to the school and didn't get in and then make the connection that literally the entire school is just white. I'm very confused. I mean, I completely agree that racism is very much alive across the world and that this town, which was written to be any town in any country, whatever, could 100% have a secret society that was focused on destroying the lives of individuals from a race that they hate, right? Like, that could happen in the United States, probably Canada, probably the UK, probably pretty much anywhere. Like, yes, that is incredibly believable. But what isn't believable was the absolute humongous scope of it. I mean, again, they literally had the entire school roped into this. There's not a single person that isn't actively racist in the school that that is just not okay with destroying the lives of two random people. It just seemed to be way too much. I mean, remember, this wasn't even just the school. I mean, they also had like a summer camp where they planned how to get back at everybody. There was like a list of people doing things. The reporter was apparently part of it. Like, how how is this so big? And so many people. It did not seem very likely that that entire school would be a part of it. Definitely a secret society within that school. And I can even see a reporter being part of it. You know, obviously she would have graduated from there or whatever. But again, the entire school? And there's only one person who ever realized, oh, what I'm doing is wrong after befriending her for like 10 seconds. Everybody else who was her friend over the last four years was completely okay with being terrible to her. (sighs) I don't get it. (laughs) And the last thing I'm going to be talking about um, is actually, I think, like four things. But just these little things that were never quite explained. Uh, The first is about the headmaster. Why did they replace him in the beginning of the story? That was never explained. Was he changing his mind? Did he not know about it and was replaced with someone who did know about it? Very confused. It could have been great if they replaced him so that the scheme could happen. Like, again, like if not the entire friggin' school was in on it, but only certain people, like, get rid of this guy so they could put in their own dude. But that was never explicitly stated and never even hinted at, and I have no idea what the purpose of changing out the headmaster was. The second is why they made Devon a prefect to begin with. What was the point of doing that? Maybe I'm misremembering, but I can't remember a time where that was really important, that he became a prefect. I, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe it was mentioned, but I don't remember it. And I also think that I remember that it was taken away pretty quickly. So again, what was the point? I don't know. The third is what happened to all the other people that this happened to? Right? I mean, they never seek them out. They never go and talk to any of them. So what happened to them? Are they 
dead? Do they kill them afterward? I, do, I have no idea because we never find out what happened to those first people. I thought it was going to be a big deal, but then they just were like, yeah, this is a person and let's forget about it. I don't know. And then the last one is what was the point of Terrell's sister being sick? I thought she was going to be like a past victim that, you know, like maybe had a mental breakdown or they did something to her that caused her, you know, some kind of, uh, like issue, like they bullied her or did something and it caused a, you know, respiratory problem or I don't know, whatever the thing, but I thought she would be a past victim. But instead, I don't think there was anything, like, I think she was literally just used as a way to get Terrell to seem sketchy at one point. But they never really, that I can remember, do anything with her being sick. I don't know. I don't know, guys. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I definitely recommend With the Fire on High. The short chapters don't quite work for me personally, but overall I still think it's a great book and you should definitely check it out. Aces of Spades, however, you might hear my husband in the background. Uh, Aces of Spades, I'm just completely unsure about it. While I like the basis of the story, the characters, the character development, and the ending all fell very flat for me, and I don't know if it's really worth a read. But yeah, there you have it. Those are my thoughts on With the Fire on High and Ace of Spades. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Mixed Media Reviews Podcast, and you can also find me anywhere you find your podcasts, probably. Please join me next week where I'm going to be reviewing a TV show, and I think I want to do something a little bit different, um, and you'll just have to tune in next week to see, or I guess to hear. Anywho, have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye!